This is The Ethicist, a podcast from the New York Times Magazine. I'm Amy Bloom, novelist and writer-in-residence at Wesleyan University, and along with my co-hosts, we're going to debate and then answer some of the tricky ethical questions Times Magazine readers send in every week. And let me introduce my co-hosts. Anthony Appia teaches philosophy, and Kenji Yoshino teaches law, both at New York University. Welcome, Anthony. Hi, how are you? I'm good, and welcome, Kenji. Thanks, Amy. Coming up, we'll tackle reader questions about fair housing, meaning fair to whom, the balance of protecting your community and protecting yourself, and what we mean by spirit of the law. So here is our first question. The Fair Housing Act of 1968, with subsequent amendments in 1988, prohibits discrimination in housing by gender, race, national origin, religion, disability, or familial status, etc. However, there is one huge exception. Anyone can build and rent or sell housing that prohibits residents who are under age 55. This is called age-restricted housing, and it is very popular in my state. The purpose of such housing is to exclude children, or any adult young enough to have children, the idea being that if children are excluded from any new housing, that will not require any more spending on public schools, and possibly lower property taxes. Such housing, and actively discouraging any other type, can result in a big deficit of working-age people, since there are too few affordable dwelling units for them. There are other bad effects, but the decline in numbers of families with children and young workers has been the worst. But regardless of the social and economic impact, such discrimination against children is in my view both unethical and just plain wrong. Just as we have long prohibited housing that excludes the elderly, I think we should now prohibit housing that excludes children. How do you feel about this? Peter Francis, Exeter, New Hampshire. My main feeling is that you're focusing too narrowly on the question of how public education is financed. It's certainly true that all of us have an obligation to pay our fair share towards the support of public education, and setting up housing in a way that that stops people paying the taxes necessary in order to do that is a bad thing to do unless they're paying for their fair share of public education in some other way. But the existence of housing of this sort, age-restricted housing, isn't the main thing that's a difficulty for the way in which public education is financed in this country. So I would focus here just on the question whether there's anything wrong with creating housing in which old people don't have to spend time around young people. And my view is there's nothing wrong with that. It's not an impermissible form of discrimination, though I myself wouldn't want to live in a housing system where there were no young people. I agree with that. I don't think it's really necessarily the case that um, that the explicit purpose of this housing is so that children will be excluded from new housing and that won't require any more spending on public schools and it will make children less well-educated and also have fewer places to live and fewer towns that they can live in. Um, I do think that affordable housing for young families is a very good idea. I don't think there's anything wrong with housing for older people. As Anthony says, I personally wouldn't want to live in a community that had no younger people. But we are all, if we're lucky, going to get to be older people. We are not just a group exercising its enormous historical muscle, the old, and um, barring all other citizens from housing entirely just from this particular housing arrangement. Um, and I don't think that there's anything unethical about that. I think it's okay to say that in our particular housing development, we don't want children. Yeah, I'm reminded of how the United States Supreme Court said that age-based classifications didn't trigger heightened constitutional protections on exactly the ground that Amy raised. 
It noted in 1976 that, quote, old age marks a stage that each of us will reach if we live out our normal span, uh, close quote. But I'm not sure if I agree with this reasoning because generally I think what we're thinking about in discrimination cases is whether or not there's empathy failure between uh, the groups in question. And even though we'll all someday be old if we're lucky enough to live out our span, this is a one-way ratchet. And so it's highly unlikely that the young will empathize with the old, unfortunately. And it's pretty unlikely that the old will remember what it's like to be young, given that they will never be young uh, again, at least uh, remember in the sense of having empathy for the young. So I come to the same destination as my esteemed colleagues here, but through a quite different path, which relies on something else that Amy said, which is that the group doing the excluding is not some monolithically powerful majority. So I'm not thinking only of the elderly here, but also of the child-free in our society, who I think are subjected to many forms of slights or, or microaggressions because they don't have children. So power dynamics always matter to me, and I don't think that this is an instance in which this monolithically powerful majority is fencing out this minority. Rather, I think that it is a group that's engaging in defensive separatism on its own part in order to um, preserve its interests as a minority. And also, if you are concerned about public school education in your state, the other very ethical thing to do is to work for better public school education in your state, regardless of where you live. All right, let's dive into the next letter. Last April, I hired a woman to take care of my then eight-month-old daughter. This nanny lived in our neighborhood with her 10-year-old son and seemed energetic and experienced caring for babies. I checked the references she gave me, and they all spoke well of her, though only one family seemed to know her well. Fast forward three months, I come home one evening after work, and the nanny is not yet back with my younger daughter. When she arrives half an hour late, she is visibly intoxicated and reeks of alcohol. I immediately fire her after getting a verbal admission that she had been drinking. I later found out, through the reference who knew her well and who subsequently fired her after hearing my story, that the nanny had previously been fired by another family for being drunk on the job. This reference has been persuaded by the nanny that that story was not true and that what the family smelled was hand sanitizer. The nanny lives in my neighborhood, where many people use our local email listserv as the place to seek out nannies. I know that she responds to these email ads, and I have just found out that she currently has another job with a family, taking care of their baby. But I don't know who the family is or how to contact them. My husband does not want me to post anything on our local email listserv for fear of retribution. I am losing sleep that this woman is still taking care of children, and I am also worried about her son's safety. What can I do that does not put my family at risk, but does not make me feel complicit in her behavior? Name withheld. So I regret to say that I uh, responded to this question as a lawyer, as I often find myself doing. <laughs> and I want to say for the record that I understand that we're here to talk about ethics, not about legality, and the two things are not the same. But in this case, I think that many of the uh, ethical principles that are implicated here are captured in a famous legal test called the Learned Hand Test. 
So Judge Learned Hand, who was often called the 10th Justice because he was such an eminent uh, jurist on uh, the Second Circuit here, stated that the duty of care to be exercised relied on a formula which he described as the product of the probability of loss and the gravity of loss. And the question was whether or not that product was greater than the burden to be placed on the defendant. So the probability of loss here is high, I would say, because if the woman has shown up intoxicated in the job at least twice, assuming the hand sanitizer was not really the cause of uh, the smell in the first incident, we might assume that she has issues with alcohol. And we know that alcoholism is a disease that leads to a high probability of being intoxicated. The loss is also high. The harm here could be harms arising from having an intoxicated caretaker, which could range from everyday negligence to something catastrophic like a death. Only the letter writer here could, of course, assess the uh, B, right, the burden on her. Is the woman really going to retaliate? You know, And so I hope that this gives a framework to think about this. And I guess the kinds of questions I would want to know more about is, are you really sure that this woman is going to retaliate? Are there ways to mitigate the retaliation? Can the letter writer go to this woman, Debbie, and have the conversation about how she might be hurting even her own child by not getting help? As far as I can see, um, she has no special information about how this, uh, the, this woman, who she knows as a nanny, is as a mother. And she has no special reason to think that she's, she's dangerous to her own children. So the children who, who seem to be at risk here are her own, her own child, uh, through retaliation, and the child, the children who are currently in her care. And there I just agree with Kenji that it seems as though her judgment is that those children face a, a rather serious uh, risk. And so the question is, does the fact that she knows about this risk impose upon her an ethical burden to do something about it? And I would have thought the answer to that question was obviously yes. The, the difficulty is about, there are two difficulties. One is, uh, what's the best way to do that? And the second is, can she pick a way that exposes her own family to the least risk? And I think those are both reasonable things for her to be thinking about. I'd say that um, there is in the background here a kind of cultural attitude, which is worth, I think, making explicit, which is that we we all have a, a kind of suspicion of the sort of people who go around snitching on other people. This is a this is an attitude we have starting in the playground, and. Um, and we often use it, I think, as an excuse to uh, to avoid taking responsibility in cases where we know things uh, that ought to be passed on. So my inclination is to say in this case that she's not under an obligation, obviously, to expose her own family to a, to a high degree of risk, but that there must be things she can do that don't do that. One of which would be to try and find the actual family that uh, Debbie is, is engaged with and, and quietly inform them um, or perhaps make a general suggestion to people on the on the list that they ought to be checking on the bona fides of their <laughs> nannies. But I think directly uh, naming the person in a wide for for wide circulation strikes me as the kind of thing that makes it quite likely that the response would be highly negative and would expose her and her family to some risk. And so I'd try to avoid that if I could. But that isn't an excuse for doing nothing. It seems to me she now she's in the possession of a piece of information which means that she can't do nothing as her husband apparently wants her to. It seems to me she does have an opportunity 
to find Debbie because she said that somebody told her that she currently has another job with a family. And I don't know. Who, and she says she doesn't know who the family is or how to contact them. But it's very possible that the person who gave her that information would be able to help her contact them. And I would say the, the first line would be to go to the family and talk to them about it, because although it's true we don't like snitches, I suspect that parents of young children make a big exception for that and would prefer to be the recipient of the snitched information than not to hear about it. And I think the least successful thing, well, the least successful thing, I think, is probably going to talk to Debbie, since Debbie, A, already knows that Debbie drinks, and B, already knows that this woman fired her and has badmouthed her. So I don't see that as being a really successful interaction. And I think it might be possible, although I, I know the wording might be a little tricky, to post something on Listserv that says, hey, everybody, thinking of hiring... A nanny, I strongly suggest that you check every reference um, and press for details. I didn't, and I regretted it. Want more information? Contact blah, 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 and give an email address, something like that. Um, because I do think that it's understandable that this woman feels a sense of obligation, as she should. Everybody, on to our last question. I live in Silver Lake, Los Angeles. Near my house is a big open park. Dogs aren't allowed, a rule in place for the sake of children and families who fill the park on weekends. Yet, on weekday mornings, it's empty, and thus the conditions on which the validity of the rule stands are absent. So, I will walk my dog through the park and let her play off-leash. I believe I'm respecting the spirit of the law, yet I'm often harangued by passers-by, occasionally even threatened. My question. Am I bound to respect not only the rights of fellow parkgoers who are directly affected and may feel encroached upon by my dog, but also those merely passing by for whom it has no direct consequence and whose objection is therefore apparently one only of principle? Joel E. Taylor, Los Angeles, California. <laughs> I want to say that there are situations in which it is important, even imperative, not to obey an unjust law. History is filled with them, but this is not one of them. You know, there are plenty of reasons that you should obey the law, which is clearly don't walk your dog in this park, even if you think that the law serves no legitimate purpose or that you have divined its true purpose and you are sure that your behavior does not violate that true purpose. But it seems to me that you've set yourself up as the sole arbiter of what the spirit of the law is, and you've decided that... The reason is that there should not be dogs when the family's around and that that's nice for children and families. But other reasons for the law is keeping the park feces and pee free for the kids mm. who are running around, putting their hands and feet and faces everywhere. And maybe it's a community with a lot of dogs and the community has decided to have some entirely dog-free spaces. Um, and it seems to me that if you feel the actual law should be different, you take it up with your neighborhood council or the parks department. But what you are doing is creating an interpretation of the law's intention in a way that suits you and gives you the opportunity to feel ethical and act for your own convenience. And in my experience, these things don't often go together. Yeah, I agree that it's not up to you to divine the purpose of the law. That's something that maybe a judge might have to do sometimes in trying to interpret it, but that's not your job. And the law here is pretty clear. 
so I don't think that, uh, after all, if we all went around divining the purpose of the law in order to <laughs> tailor its application to us in such a way uh, as to suit us, uh, the, the legal system would soon collapse. So I think you don't have, in general, the right to decide what the real point of a law is and then to act as if that were what the law said. And there's a more general question here, which I think is important. It's true, as Amy said, that there are circumstances in which uh, it's, uh, it's ethically permissible. Indeed, there are circumstances in which it's ethically required to disobey the law. But I think we do have a general duty to obey the law Myself, this is a controversial claim, and there are legal theorists who don't hold this view. But my view is we do have a duty to obey the law just because it's the law, because we have a general duty to sustain the, the shared fabric of our common lives. And uh, the law is part of the scheme of cooperation from which we all uh, benefit. And especially if failure to go along with the law undermines the scheme of cooperation, and it looks like that's what the neighbors feel because they complain, then you it seems to me that's, that counts against um, a breach of the law. So provided this law is not um, you know, extremely unjust, and as far as I can see, there's no claim of that sort, I think you ought to go along with it. Um, and if you want to have it changed, you should have it changed. There is one... Um, uh, thing that, that the letter writer says that strikes me as uh, profoundly missing the point, uh, which is making a distinction between people inside <laughs> and outside the, the railings around the park. Um, one reason people might be outside the railings is because they don't want to be in a park with a dog in it. Uh, and you've essentially uh, ruled out uh, uh, the consideration of a class of people who you wouldn't notice. They wouldn't be there if you were regularly coming with your dog in the morning. Yeah, listening to you both, I have very little to add, except for I am thinking about two people who are imprisoned. One is uh, Dr. King saying that an unjust law is no law, and the other is Plato's Socrates at the other extreme saying that even unjust laws have to be obeyed if one has relied on them during one's life as sources of social order. You, you, the letter writer, I, I don't think can say that you are either of these individuals. So on the one hand, I feel like you know this law is not uh, so unjust as to open itself really to the claim that you can ignore it. And on the other hand, uh, if, if Plato Socrates can do it in the Crito, then you can obey this law uh, would be the other uh, way of looking at it. And then just to uh, hopefully not to pile on too hard on this uh, because I don't want to be um, obnoxious, but just to add one additional thought, which I hope might be helpful, which is really just an extension of what Anthony was saying earlier. Think about the scenario in which everything that you as a letter writer have said is true. Um, I might be trying to get into the park when I see the dog and be chilled from entry. I think that that's what Anthony was raising. But I might also be a passerby on that particular day, but not being a mind reader, not realize that you, the letter writer, only walk your dog on weekday mornings. So... I see a dog in the park, and I'm afraid of dogs, so that could lead me not to use the park on weekends as well when you believe that people should be allowed to use uh, the uh, park. So one of the reasons why we surrender our power to the law is because the law solves these collective action problems. So, so when people defect from those common arrangements, it makes it very hard for us to organize our lives. So I think that part of the problem I have here is that you are yourself 
arrogating to yourself the notion that you can read the minds of the people who promulgated the law, but you're also asking other people to be mind readers themselves and to read your mind and to understand that you only do this, i.e. walk your dog, on weekday mornings as opposed to all the time. Uh, how are they supposed to know that? I'm with that. If you want someone to take your dog, take him to a meeting of the local parks committee. We all sound very crotchety, but it sounds like we are in agreement. <laughs> we do. We are, we're all kind of, you know, get off my lawn. <laughs> That's it for The Ethicist. If you'd like to send us your ethical quandary or comment on the show, you can reach us at ethicists at nytimes.com. If you'd like to leave a voicemail question for us to answer on the show, the number is 212-556-7070. If you like the show, please be sure to tell a friend and subscribe to us on iTunes. Our producer is Kerry Hillman, and the music is by the band Broke for Free. For Anthony Appiah and Kenji Yoshino, I'm Amy Bloom. We'll talk to you next week on The Ethicists.